From WLRN News, this is Detention by Design. I'm Danny Rivero. I'm standing in front of one of my very favorite pieces of public art in Miami. It's called the Liberty Column. And what you see is there's a coral rock and extending upwards from the coral rock in what looks like bronze, there's two hands that look like someone who's drowning and who's reaching for the heavens. And behind it, there's a column of, of marble and that is the Liberty Column. And let me read you the plaque that sits here. It says, the Liberty Column. Since 1959, thousands of Cubans have perished anonymously while fleeing tyranny in small boats or makeshift rafts. Although their names, like those of martyred refugees of other nations, are written solely on the pages of the sea. This orange is for you. Uh, no, no. From Cuba. Yeah. De Cuba. De Cuba. A Colombian immigrant named Edmundo Medina comes up to me in the middle of speaking into a microphone. Lo que más me duele es una cosa, me hace sufrir mucho ver cómo vienen los inmigrantes de Cuba en unas balsas pobrecitos para llegar a la libertad y muchas veces se hunden. It hurts me to see how many Cubans have left on rafts to find freedom. And it hurts me to see how many of them have drowned. Miami abre las brasas para todo el mundo. A todos los refugiados Miami is a beautiful city that welcomes refugees from everywhere. May the people of Cuba stay strong, and I hope one day they get their freedom back. Que viva el pueblo de Cuba y que algún día vuelva otra vez a la libertad como era antes. También no solamente los cubanos sino los haitianos otros sí. Y también en la frontera por México tantos centroamericanos han salido en caravanas para una mejor vida. And not just the Cubans, also the Haitians and all the Central Americans who have died crossing borders. By the time 1980 came around, Cuba had been living under a communist dictatorship for more than two decades. Freedom of expression and freedom of the press were essentially ended. Only one political party was allowed, and the government even shut down socialist newspapers that didn't buy the Communist Party line. Independent labor unions were taken over by the government. Workers lost the right to strike, and a U.S. trade embargo battered huge parts of the Cuban economy. The country was barely hanging on with support from the Soviet Union. On April 1st, 1980, a Cuban named Hector San Justiz drove a stolen bus through the gates of the Peruvian embassy in Havana in an attempt to file for political asylum. There were five other Cubans with him. Cuban guards of the embassy opened fire, and one was killed in the crossfire. After the Peruvian embassy refused to return the Cubans to the government of Fidel Castro to face charges, Castro pulled all of the police guards that were protecting the embassy under international law. The very next day, an estimated 10,000 Cubans stormed the Peruvian embassy in an attempt to get political asylum in Peru. Within a few days of this incident, the communist government of Fidel Castro had a crisis on its hands. People were clamoring to leave the country fleeing a system of government that Castro claimed was making life better for Cubans. In reality, the economy was a mess. Food and medicine were hard to find, and there was widespread political repression. This incident opened up a new chapter in U.S. history. In 
a new chapter that would play a major role in the creation of the modern U.S. immigration system. Within a few weeks of that first incident at the Peruvian embassy, Castro declared that anyone who wanted to leave the country could leave. They could be picked up by boat at the port of Mariel, just west of Havana. Cubans living in Miami, who mostly fled in the early years of the Cuban Revolution that brought Castro to power in 1959, they got the message. And virtually overnight, a massive convoy of boats headed to the port of Mariel to pick up family members and friends and take them back to Florida. This became known as the Mariel Boat Lift. Within a week, thousands of Cubans were arriving to Florida every single day. And this started to make headlines across the whole country. Good evening. Politicians from several states tonight are sharply criticizing President Carter's handling of the Cuban refugee problem. The governor of Texas, Bill Clements, says the president has literally opened the floodgates, placing no limitations... President Carter was taken completely by surprise. On top of the thousands of Cubans who were arriving by boat, more Haitians were landing in Florida by boat, too. By late May, the government of Dade County, which includes the city of Miami, estimates 30,000 Haitians had arrived over the previous few years, and about 30,000 Cubans in just a few weeks. Coast Guard is now communicating with all boats who are en route to Cuba and those in Mariel Harbor in Cuba. And so President Carter gave this speech on May 14, 1980. To urge them to return to the United States without accepting additional passengers. No new trips to Cuba by these unauthorized boats should be started. Those who comply with this request or command will have nothing to fear from the law. But we will ensure that the law is obeyed. Persons who violate this requirement and who violate U.S. immigration custom laws by traveling to Cuba to pick up additional passengers will be subject to civil fines and to criminal prosecution. Furthermore, boats used to bring people unlawfully to this country will be seized. Most of the Cuban refugees who arrive in the U.S. during this time are immediately processed and released. Some of the Cubans are kept in jails or detention centers for months or even years on end. But the vast majority were quickly released. This immediately sets up a contrast between the treatment of Cubans and the treatment of Haitians, who are still facing long periods of detention when they got here. And that is something that will change the immigration system drastically in the U.S. I promise you, we'll get into all of that. My name is uh, Rafael Tejero. I was born in Havana, Cuba in 1952. Tejero was 28 years old when all of this happened. And he was doing pretty all right for himself, working as a director at a local TV station in Havana. But with Cuban society splitting between those who wanted to stay on the anti-American communist island and those who wanted to go to America, Tejero was confronted one day at work. They told me, you know, Rafael, some people here have uh, left. Uh, they wanted to go uh, with the Yankees, with the imperialism and all that BS. Yankees, they called them, the Americans. And... And we, we, we need to know 
if you are really going to fall into the temptation of, of letting the country, if, uh, if, they, if for whatever reason they, they come to pick you up, and I say, yes, I was uh, raised by my mother because my father died when I was six. And if she wants to leave, I can, I can, I can leave her. You know, I have to go with her. Tejero says the moment he spoke those words came the retribution. Cuba, like Haiti, was a one-party country. If you went against a revolutionary government, you were put on a blacklist. And in Cuba, everyday people were expected to defend the revolution. Meaning, his answer that he'll leave Cuba if his mom wants to go set a lot of people against him, including his own bosses at the TV station. I mean, they, they, they say the worst things. Uh, I mean, they insult me. And then they made me go out to the street on a four-floor building by the escalator. I, can, I couldn't take the elevator. And when I was outside, they gave me a big, big acto de repudio. An acto de repudio translates to an act of repudiation. The practice was widespread and broadly documented in the early 80s. Basically, it meant neighbors and all sorts of other people gathering to insult someone for being a counter-revolutionary and against the left-wing government. The insults often came with physical attacks and threats of harm. And it was encouraged by the government. They followed me onto my house, which was about uh, a mile and a half from my workplace. And they, they got a big meeting in front of my house and they threw eggs and, and hung uh, Uncle Sam. The people hung an effigy of Uncle Sam, signifying the United States of America. I mean, it was the worst. It was, I, I thought I was gonna die, really, because they were pushing me and, you know, tackle me uh, throughout the, the streets. And nobody, nobody would be able to do anything to help me. That was a great moment. That was a turning point. That was, uh, I say, well, I mean, no, this is, this is not what they say it is. Tejero went to a hotel to remove himself from the situation. And his mom stayed back at home. They tried to storm through the door. My mother got a machete. And she said, she said well, whoever go through that door, I'm going to cut her arm with a machete. And I went to a hotel with my ex-wife. And I spent like 25 days uh, inside that hotel. It was intense. It was intense. The cleaning lady, the maid, went to the room and they told her, you never go, <laughs> you never go down to the pool. And uh, we said, no, we are uh, new to it. We, we want to spend all the time here. And I mean, I'd say now laughing, but it was, I mean, I, uh, I was shaking. While Tejero was in the hotel, he was trying to figure out a way to leave the country. He called friends and friends of friends in Miami to see if anyone could arrange to send a boat for him and his family. And in the meantime, the huge exodus of Cubans was starting to take a very human toll. 
It was partly because a lot of boats heading from Florida to Cuba and back were not meant for the high seas. 14-year-old Ibis Guerrero Hernandez appeared dazed as she told reporters how the 36-foot boat she was jammed onto sank 40 miles north of Mariel Bay. Her mother, father, grandmother, and two sisters were among the 14 refugees drowned. The exact number of Cubans who drowned during the Mariel boat lift is unknown. But there are many documented cases of boats going down. They said they called for help and saw a Cuban patrol boat pass them by. The most notorious narrative about this wave of migration from Cuba was that among the new arrivals in Florida were criminals that Castro released from Cuban jails. And Castro also cleared out some of the country's psychiatric wards and loaded the patients onto the ships during the Mariel boat lift. But out of tens of thousands of people, by that June, only 655 arrivals had either severe mental health issues or were convicted of serious crimes, according to the U.S. government. So the percentage was actually very small. But popular opinion became that all these Marielitos were dangerous criminals. The word Marielito, someone who came on the boat lift, became a slur, even inside of Miami's Cuban community. When the boats started landing, Dade County set up a processing center at the county fairgrounds next to Florida International University. Tens of thousands of Cubans started to get sheltered there. On the second day of that center being opened, Merritt Steerheim remembers paying it a visit. He was the Dade County manager at the time, and he played a central role in figuring out how the local government would respond to the situation. I went in there and I started looking at these people. And there are a lot of people who are just perfectly normal and, you know, elderly, mothers and fathers, middle-aged, whatever. But some of the faces were hard, hard faces, if you know what I'm saying. The way they looked, their eyes, so forth and so on. And I asked the person that I had in charge, I said, where are the feds? Where, where are the federal people here? To, to handle this info. This is an international event. No one was there. So I directed that I wanted a, uh, an ID. I wanted police ID, fingerprints, and photographs of everyone there that was coming in and processed, get names, age, some personal data, and so, so some kind of a record of who's coming into this country. You know, you had 125,000 people on those boats coming up, landing all up and down the shore. And um, I'd get calls. What are we going to do with these people? The feds were here. The, um, I mean, it was chaotic. After Jimmy Carter gave that tough speech, the federal government did confiscate some boats that were being used by Cuban-Americans to go to Cuba and pick up friends and family. Aerial photos taken in Key West show a few dozen boats that were seized. Cuban-Americans took to the streets in Miami, demanding to get their boats back. But a lot of boats still made their way to Cuba to bring friends and family back to the U.S. Many of them ended up sinking, and an unknown number of people drowned. What had started as a political crisis of the boats had turned into a humanitarian crisis. 
and President Carter responded by authorizing the Coast Guard to help the boats get to Florida instead of cracking down. Steerheim was not happy about how President Carter handled the situation. I know that uh, President Carter has done a lot of things for humanity, very caring person, but it's difficult for me to forgive him for the ineptitude and his failure to really understand and, and negotiate the terms of the Mariel refugee effort. Here you had the Cuban-American population who obviously, out of love, wanted to go down and pick up their mothers and fathers, uncles, aunts, brothers, relatives from a dictatorship. And they had a flotilla of boats, some taking great risks to go down there through the straits to pick these people up. And Carter... President Carter knee-jerked a little bit because initially he didn't approve it. And um, anyway, then when he decided that, okay, I will go along with it, there were no negotiations. Exactly what kind of negotiations President Carter might have entered into with respect to the Mariel boatlift is not really clear. In April of 1980, Fidel Castro essentially makes a unilateral decision— we're going to open up the port of Mariel, and anyone who wants to take these people away, come and get them. The U.S. government did not factor into the equation at all. As a result, uh, while there was a lot of compassion and love and good things that happened, there's also a lot of bad things because the criminals started plying their trade and uh, our crime steps went up through the charts. Right in the middle of what came to be known as the Mariel Boat Crisis, a Florida jury refused to convict police officers who had killed a black motorcyclist named Arthur McDuffie. After that, there was an uprising in one of Miami's black neighborhoods, Liberty City. At least 18 people were killed, and there was hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage. In a report, the majority white Dade County government pointed to the huge influx of Cuban and Haitian refugees as one of the factors for the uprising. They claimed the new refugees created more economic competition for Miami's Black community that was already here, and that the county needed to do a better job supporting them. The report also acknowledged long-standing distrust of police in Black neighborhoods, even before Miami police killed Arthur McDuffie. All of this was the beginning of a decade that would mark some of the darkest days in South Florida. Miami became the murder capital of the nation in the 80s, fueled by the cocaine trade from South America that also used boats and planes to bring cocaine into Florida. Tourism is our number one industry, still is, and um, who would want to come? You are not safe walking the streets at night, no question about it. I mean, it was Time Magazine on the front page, Paradise Lost, Miami. How many people read, you know, read Time Magazine? The Chicago Tribune had a picture of uh, Florida. with uh, They made a gun out of it.
Funding for Detention by Design was made possible by the Shepherd Broad Foundation in honor of its founder, whose immigration story included detention at age 14, but also the warm embrace of the Miami community. In Cuba, Rafael Tejero was still hiding out in a hotel with his wife after he was branded a counter-revolutionary when he said he would leave for the U.S. After weeks without leaving, Tejero and his wife decided it was time to finally set foot outside to see if things were getting better. We just went to the movies, to a theater to, to watch a movie, you know? Like, if we were, uh, I mean, looking all around to see that nobody sees us. And in, the, in, the, in that time, in the, in the theaters, when they uh, put a movie, they put a noticiero. A propaganda newscast that the government showed before films. And I remember being sitting there and listening to Fidel. And well, you know what? We don't need them. We don't want them. Tejero is referencing this really famous speech that Fidel Castro gave in May of 1980, in which Castro said about anyone who doesn't have revolutionary blood, in his words, we don't want them and we don't need them. This part of the speech was famously used as an intro to the film Scarface. And so, well, there you go. They're talking about us, huh? That's for me. After leaving the hotel, Tejero went back home and kept trying to find someone who could get him out of the country. After weeks and weeks of trying, he finally got in touch with someone who knew someone in Miami who could arrange to send a boat. Basically, it was a human smuggling operation, and he had to take out an informal loan and pay the man back when he arrived in Miami. But before he could leave for the Puerto Mariel, Tejero had to check in with Cuban authorities. He went to an office with his wife and his mother. And not everything went as planned. They called us, the three of us, and they say, and they told us that my mother could come, me could come, but my wife has to stay. But why? No, because she started a career and she has to pay for it. I couldn't say a word. I mean, it was like my wall just came down because I couldn't do I couldn't do that for her, you know, to say, okay, sorry. So I didn't answer. So she was the one that said, yes, they they're going. They're going. Cuban officials refused to let his wife leave the island. They said that since she got a college education in the country she would have to stay in order to repay the debt. That was the official reason. But it also reflects the complete disdain the Castro government showed for so-called counter-revolutionaries. Basically, if you want to leave, we're going to make it hurt. By the time he was able to leave for the Puerto Mariel, it was already August of 1980. The massive flow of Cubans to Florida was slowing down. Over 100,000 Cubans had already left the country. And now Tejero was about to leave with his mother, but without his wife. 
I remember saying goodbye to her, like in the movies, through the window, crying, and she walking and running behind the bus. It was, uh, I could write a novel. After a few days spent at a mosquito-infested camp at Mariel, Tejero's boat arrived from Miami. The boat's name was All Alone. And I was so angry that I remember that I sat in the back of the boat with my back. And I turned my back to the island, to Cuba, and I didn't even want to see that place. It was dramatic. It was, uh, it rains, cats and dogs. And since President Carter reversed his hardline stance against boats picking people up in Cuba, the U.S. Coast Guard escorted his boat to the U.S. And these people in the Coast Guard were, you know, happy and, and you know, smiling, saying, hi, welcome to America. I mean, it was, it was very touching, very emotional. They were really good. I never forget that. The only feeling that I, I didn't have was fear. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't matter if the boat sank because I just got some heavy, I mean, the weight from me leaving that island and leaving all that fear that would, what happened to us, it would stay. So, uh, and I was sure that I, sooner or later I would take care of my wife and, and I, would, I would do that. When Tejero arrives in Key West, he's quickly processed and put on a bus up to Miami. Then we came and we went sent to the Chrome Avenue facility. The Chrome Avenue facility. This facility on the very edge of the Everglades in Dade County plays an outsized role in the creation of the U.S. immigration system as we know it. Specifically, when it comes to the federal government detaining immigrants who are trying to plead for political asylum. Brianna Nofel is the immigration detention researcher with the College of William & Mary, who we met in part two of this series. I, I really cannot emphasize how important it is because like all the stuff that is kind of like the popular narratives about detention that talk about history, they all start like with Chrome. Chrome was a, a missile testing site. Um, it's essentially in the Florida Everglades. This is where the federal government kept missiles ready to launch at Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. There's a single small road that leads down to it. And so uh, in 1980, when the U.S. government um, is facing, you know, this really tremendous uh, number of asylum seekers that's coming, they, they are kind of looking for what they envision as temporary temporary housing, temporary processing solutions. So places they can hold asylum seekers while they look for, if they're Cuban, while they look for a family that they can release them to, while they kind of investigate criminal backgrounds. They often use the language of like a holding site. So after initially lagging in response to the Mariel boat lift, the Carter administration finally puts boots on the ground in Florida. The majority of the Cubans who come through the temporary camp set up at Chrome are released to family members or to charity groups that sponsor them within a few days. Technically, they're released on parole while they go through the immigration process. It means that most of the new Cuban arrivals can quickly get access to welfare benefits to help them get on their feet. And it also gives them the ability to legally find a job. That's what happened to Rafael Tejero, who spent only a single day in the camp. 
And this was in sharp contrast to how the federal government had been treating most Haitians for years. Haitians who were still arriving to Florida by boat. I mean, we, we were in catch and release. We always were different. I mean, uh, not because we're better or nothing, but we, we, they gave us that status. And then in a week, I already was working as a busboy in a, in a nightclub here. From being a TV director, Cuba for a busboy here in Miami. This different reality for Cuban and Haitian refugees starts to become especially pronounced during the Mariel boat lift. And it was the focus of a one-hour radio special produced in 1980 by the Haitian media group Radio Haiti in Terre. In the next clip, we're going to hear Radio Haiti journalist Michel Montas talking with Richard Gulagi, who is a deputy district director for the Immigration and Naturalization Service under President Carter. What's the percentage of Haitians coming in and asking for political asylum? Most of them do. How many ask? They don't. This is... This is probably where mm-hmm. the, uh, the thinking con- stems from uh, concerning the difference in the, in the uh, handling. The Cuban, mm-hmm. when they arrive at Key West, to a man, ask, the, their, their story is, I am, I am leaving Cuba because of the political situation, because, mm-hmm. uh, and if I return, I would be, you know, which is a claim to political self. The Haitian, inevitably, on the first contact with us, when he steps off the boat, he says, I'm looking for a job. I'm mm-hmm. coming here to work. Uh, I want to support my family. Which, you know, we, you know, we have this humanitarian feeling for these people, mm-hmm. but this does not meet mm-hmm. the definition of political asylum. Therefore, we do not accept it at that point as mm-hmm. a political asylum claim. However, once the person gets into the community and he meets with these, the other Haitians that are here, and the attorneys involved, he learns very quickly that, mm-hmm. ah, you must say these magic words. And therefore, uh, at, at that time, then he comes back and says, give me the paper, the political song. By the end of the year, Baby Doc and the Tonton Makuts would launch a crackdown on Haitian opposition, sending journalists at Radio Haiti in terror including Michel Montas, who we just heard from, into prison and then into exile. We're going to dive way more into this disparity in the U.S. government's treatment of Cuban and Haitian refugees in the next episode. For the Cubans who were detained, the experience in these federal sites was not a good one. Because of the public perception and the media frenzy about that small number of Cubans who were freed from prisons and concerns about public safety, Some of them were held longer than expected for background checks. And there were also so many Cubans who didn't have family in Miami who could easily and quickly help them get resettled. This created a backlog. The federal government was overwhelmed by the sheer number of people coming in. And so what the Carter administration does is it decides to ship tens of thousands of Cubans across the country to repurposed military bases in other states, just to temporarily hold them as they get processed. And it's worth pausing to note exactly who was sent to these military bases. A study from the University of Miami found that black and darker-skinned Cubans made up about 10% of the people who were quickly processed and released. But they made up about half of the Cubans sent to these military bases to be detained. There's four big sites. 
one in the Florida Panhandle, one in Arkansas, one in Pennsylvania, and one in Wisconsin that the Cubans are moved to. And it's an incredibly frustrating experience because, you know, it, it feels like jail. Um, they're heavily policed sites. They're constantly told they're not in jail. But, you know, when you don't know when you're going to be released, that is kind of a, a hard pitch. And the Immigration Service learns a lot from that experience about what it's like to kind of have custody over this number of people. You know, it, it's kind of a it's, it's an experiment for the for the federal government and for the Immigration Service in in how to hold tens of thousands of people. This experiment in holding tens of thousands of people trying to plead for asylum in these federal facilities fundamentally changes how the federal government thinks of the immigration system itself. Through the 1970s, the federal government is interested in building immigration detention centers. And it's something that comes up in Congress. It's burdensome for them to have to negotiate with all of these different cities and counties and to keep calling up wardens to like see who has jail space. That's that's not their ideal vision of how this works. They would like to have a facility in South Florida that they could just send everyone to, done deal, right? But when these things come up in Congress, there's constantly pushback. Like Congress people are like, no one is going to want federal immigration detention centers. Like where the heck are we going to put these? Like no one's going to want them in their backyard. The optics are going to be so terrible. Like incarcerating immigrants is not going to be, it's not going to be acceptable to the American people. There's interest in the concept, certainly by the immigration service, but politicians don't think it's, they don't think it's feasible. They don't think it's going to be, um, something they can kind of get away with or get the American people to buy into. The days of keeping lots of immigrants behind bars and detention centers, that had been over for decades at this point. But now in 1980, this is when the tide definitively turns. That is really what shifts with Marielle, is that suddenly they have this moment where all of the imagery is you know, this idea of uncontrolled migration, boats and boats and boats of people um, that the U.S. did not invite, that are all claiming asylum, that are changing the South Florida community. And that is the moment where they say, okay, now it's going to be politically, socially viable to make an argument for detention centers. Now, people across the country not just in Miami, start to complain about the influx of Cuban refugees. More than 20,000 Cubans were sent to the military base Fort Chaffee in Arkansas. Future Democratic President Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas at the time. And after some Cubans escape, he ends up activating the National Guard. This is from the archives at the Central Arkansas Library System. More than 200, the number is still unclear. Cuban refugees left the premises of Fort Chapel, and it was over an hour and a half, over an hour and a half, before the MPs showed up at the gate where the Cubans left. And the only security for the area was provided by a small number, comparatively small number, of Arkansas State Police, people from Sheriff Kaufman's department, and people from Chief Oliver's department, who were outside the city of Fort Smith, down there trying to provide security for the people of the area. I must say that, that we are all frustrated and uh, disappointed and determined that the security problems which exist at the fort will be solved and must be solved in the interest of the people of this area. 
days after Clinton says security at Fort Chaffee is going to be beefed up, some of the Cubans being detained at the military base launch an uprising in an attempt to break out. Locals armed with shotguns stood guard around town, threatening to shoot Cubans if they left the base. Across the country, resentment against the refugees was building. In South Florida, a Russian immigrant named Emmy Schaefer got about 70,000 signatures for a proposal that would ban the Dade County government from providing translation services and make English the official language of the county government. This was after Dade County officially became bilingual English and Spanish in 1973. And that English-only question would now go before voters in the November 1980 election. To be clear, this was not the government pushing this. It was residents of Dade County that succeeded in putting it on the ballot. Here's Schaefer speaking with WTVJ about the purpose of that proposal. It doesn't mean that all Spanish people have to get on a boat and go back to Cuba. It does not mean I hate anyone that hates anyone or something. It's a disease. The petition means one thing, to eliminate expenditure and to bring two communities together, to work together, to understand together, to do things together, but not to It's important to note here that, unlike today, Cuban-Americans really did not have much political power or even voting power in Miami at this time. That would change a lot in the years to come. But for the moment, the city and county governments were almost entirely white in their leadership. Again, here's Merritt Steerheim, who was the Dade County manager at the time. And for the record, he strongly opposed the English-only movement when it was going on the ballot. There was some resentment of people when they got on an elevator or they went to go to the cashier or whoever it was to not be able to communicate in English, which is our traditional language in in, uh, the United States, frustrated them, you know, and it's it's a human reaction. we can be critical of it and, and so forth. And in some cases, it should be. We should be critical if people get carried away, rude or what have you. But there was a pretty heavy feeling that, hey, you're in America now. You ought to speak English. Speak the native tongue. This is when white flight starts to happen in Miami. Tons of white families picking up and leaving. Signs went up around town reading, Will the last American to leave Miami please bring the flag? Even though the prevailing narrative about the Cubans who came during the Mariel boat lift was that they were criminals let loose from Castro's prisons and mental health facilities, in the end, the federal government identified more than 11,000 Cubans with criminal records, but determined that the large majority of them were convicted of political offenses or petty crimes like selling things on the black market offenses that would not be considered felonies in the U.S. Rafael Tejero, who had arrived from Cuba on the Mariel boat lift in the summer of 1980 and was working as a busboy, soon found a job in Spanish-language TV in Miami. His wife was able to leave for Venezuela years later, and then eventually she made her way to Miami. They'd been apart for about four years. Tejero says they tried to rekindle their relationship, but it just didn't work. 
Fidel finally got his wish, you know? He fucked the, I mean, this is not for the radio, but he said, fuck my, uh, my relationship with my wife. Flor came and we didn't agree with anything because, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I grew up here and she grew up between Cuba and Venezuela. We were born, both adults and, uh, and that time is too, it's been pretty hard to reconsider. And the smuggler turned friend that helped get Tejero off the island was himself killed in the wave of gun violence that hit Miami in the 80s. 1980 was the year Miami became the murder capital of the United States, coinciding with a huge influx of refugees. He went to see his mother, who lived in an apartment in, uh, in Hialeah. And when he was in the parking lot, he got shot and killed. Nobody knew. At this day, it's a, it's a cold case. By the time the Mariel boatlift ended in October 1980, an estimated 125,000 Cubans had arrived in South Florida by boat. And over the same seven-month period, an estimated 25,000 Haitians also arrived by boat. At this point, at the tail end of 1980, the hostage crisis was taking place in Iran, and severe inflation was battering the U.S. economy. President Jimmy Carter was running for re-election against Republican Ronald Reagan. Weeks before the presidential election, Carter spoke to a group of Democratic supporters at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. And we're going to listen to his comments at length here because it really speaks to the mood of the moment in Miami and also the nation and the kind of fine line Carter was trying to walk at the time. This is a political year. One of the most difficult human problems I've ever had to face as president has been the refugees that have come here from Cuba and from Haiti this year, sometimes a few days in an uncontrollable stream. We didn't anticipate it. Our laws were not designed to accommodate three or 4,000 refugees coming here per day. Our laws were designed for people to be screened in a foreign country, carefully cataloged and brought here a few at the time. This just didn't happen. All over the world, there are refugees searching for freedom. And whenever you think back on the history of our country, you'll recognize that our nation is a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of refugees. Ours is a great country. And one of the reasons it's so great is that we're different from one another. We've come here from all over the world. And this doesn't make us weak. It makes us stronger. Your community, yes, in Miami, has been through tough times. I don't deny that. And I regret that you've had to suffer, perhaps more than anyone else in this nation, because of the refugees who come here in a flood. We've been very forceful in trying to stop the boats going to Cuba to pick up people to come here against our laws. But once those boats were loaded, as president, I had a choice to treat them as human beings with a precious life or to see their lives lost at sea. And I did what was right. And I'm glad the Floridians did what was right, too. 
And in this other part of Carter's speech, you can hear some of the resentment creeping in, even from his own Democratic supporters. We're trying to find those refugees a place outside of Florida. We've done the best we could. A man repeatedly yells, send them to Georgia, and it trips up the president. Money cost in selling the, the hostages, the refugees, excuse me, were paid by the federal government. We also will help in the future. Remember, this is in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis. Flood of, hostage, of refugees coming here. But we will minimize in the future and use the legal authority that I have, including the Navy and the Coast Guard, to be sure that the rest of the, of the, of the refugees that come here are coming in accordance with United States law. There are going to be some problems in the future. And as those refugees that have already come here have to be resettled, we're doing everything we can to find them a good home, someplace in the country outside of Florida, where the unemployment, where the unemployment level is relatively good. President Carter lost his re-election in a landslide for Republican Ronald Reagan. In Florida, Carter lost to Reagan by 17 percentage points after winning the state just four years earlier. The ballot measure that would make the Dade County government English only also won in a landslide, with 59% of voters in support. That vote is seen by historians as an opening shot in a wave of anti-immigrant laws and ballot measures that were passed across the country in the decades to come. Next time on Detention by Design, Ronald Reagan becomes president, and he kickstarts a new tactic for slowing immigration, keeping refugees in detention indefinitely. Uh, we have effectively lost control of our borders, and uh, I think, uh, particularly with the Mariel boat lift and, and situations like that, which have brought it to the forefront, mm -hmm. the public now thinks, uh, and very strongly, that uh, something has to be done about this problem. Archival clips in this episode came from CBS News, WTVJ, Radio Haiti and Terror, the Central Arkansas Library System, and the Carter National Library. Detention by Design is a production of WLRN News. It's edited by Alicia Zuckerman. We also had editing help from Tracy Egbash and Tim Paget. Thanks, too, to the rest of the WLRN newsroom. Fact-checking by Amy Tardiff. Jacqueline Charles is our consultant. Engineering and sound design by Merritt Jacob. Detention by Design is reported and produced by me, Danny Rivera.